Thank you, Gerald. I love the harmonica. That's just good music. If you want to turn your Bible somewhere and maybe bookmark it, uh, you could turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Um, but our, our current Ten Commandments series, it is topical. We're going over uh, difficult topics and, and bouncing around the Bible quite a bit. I don't normally ask people to flip pages to each passage. I just think, personally, it's more of a distraction than just citing the references and giving them to you. Um, But I encourage you to possibly jot them down when I make a scripture reference. And I even keep, I've always done this for years, keep sticky notes on the inside of my Bible. So if the pastor's moving quickly, I jot them down so I can go back and uh, evaluate them or reference them later. Today's message is titled... More than just a day. The fourth commandment is given to us in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 4. It says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You know, I think of Caitlin's testimony earlier. Uh, You think about how she was taught and how she sat under instruction. That's what she first referenced, right? And how she learned and how she grew in knowledge and understanding. And at the end, if you noticed, uh, what she wrapped up at the end with was grace. And uh, uh, that, that is the grace, greatest lesson of all is grace. And I encourage you today that the message will end with grace. Just have a little patience. Have a little patience. Perhaps you recall at the introduction of this message just five weeks ago, a series, excuse me, I emphasized how God's commands are timeless, right? We call this series the Timeless Ten. We don't have authority to alter them unless God's Word alters them, unless God makes a change, either, either by nullifying them in some cases or through superseding His command with later revelation, new revelation as we move into the new uh, Testament. During our scripture reading in Colossians chapter 2 earlier, you heard the Apostle Paul declare this No one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. For such things, Paul the Apostle explains, served as a shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Paul suggests that observing such things, dietary laws, Sabbaths, festivals, things like that, served as a shadow. It means they were a reflection, an image of the true substance with the reality being in Christ. Every, Every substance gives off a shadow. This was a foreshadow of the fullness of Christ, these things. Now, that exhortation, let no one judge you in respect to a Sabbath day. That's a pretty clear statement. 
And, and especially when the context that we read earlier explains how circumcision had changed, right? Now it's a circumcision that is spiritual, not of the flesh. And it, it told us how Christ is superior to the law. Um, in Him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, so it exalts Christ in that passage. So that fact alone ought to make us a, a little suspicious right away that, that something's changed, all right? Something has changed. Now, even as clear as Colossians 2 verse 16 seems to be, if that were the only statement in the New Testament that, that alluded to a change in observing the Sabbath, we'd want to tread a little softly, all right? You understand what I'm saying? But if we were to find multiple parallel statements and numerous other supporting passages that allude to a change in the Sabbath, then we can trust with pretty good confidence that there's been a change. Does that make sense? You following me? Because we already know with the first advent of Christ, that means the first coming of Christ at His birth, we know at the first advent of Christ, followed by His, his glorious resurrection from the dead, that many things have changed. All right? Many things have changed. We no longer observe the dietary restrictions. Folks, not at all. Unless by guided by a doctor. I'll grant you that. You have health problems, you might want to have dietary restrictions. But in Mark chapter 7, verse 18, Christ told his disciples, Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him, because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then is eliminated? And Mark writes, Thus Jesus declared all foods clean, right? Again, that statement alone should be clear enough on dietary restrictions. But our Lord affirms once again in Acts chapter 10, verse 13, where, where Peter is given a vision of all kinds of ceremonial unclean animals, and where a voice came to him saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. All right? And just in case someone today has a hard head concerning this, later in Galatians chapter 2, we see the Apostle Paul, he was an ex-Pharisee, by the way, publicly rebuking Peter for even suggesting the church should still be keeping dietary laws. In fact, you can't even have a segregated group that, that feels they remain superior by eating kosher. That's what we learn in Galatians. So such behavior is sin. So, so Christians are not merely free from the law and associated dietary restrictions. We're also not sanctified by the law or such dietary restrictions. We're not made more holy or better Christians or superior Christians to other churches because we were to observe dietary restrictions. Never get sucked into that, folks. That is way more common today than you realize when you get out there. Uh, enjoy your barbecue. Enjoy barbecue. There's a restaurant in Okeechobee, by the way. It's called Lightsey's Fish Company. I was talking to a couple of you about it, and they, they have a plaque inside that says this, if it swims, crawls, or hops, 
we serve it. I'm like, all right, count me in. And after Sinai, after Mount Sinai and the giving of the law, and prior to the full purification that comes in Christ, the dietary restrictions served as a reminder to Israel that they, like God, should view certain things as distasteful. But they further preserved Israel from being assimilated into the surrounding cultures. That's what dietary restrictions uh, helped to do. Circumcision served similar purposes. Physically, it, it was a continual reminder, generation after generation, to Israel that God's covenant with Abraham uh, would be fulfilled through a physical descendant. It, it, it was about lineage, the seed, the descendant. Uh, through which God's promises would be fulfilled in, in that covenant. And circumcision kept the tribes, those families of Israel, distinct until that promised son of David, you know, the true heir to the throne, uh, until he was born. Now, after that king was born, the King Christ, it's, it's no longer... Necessary. It's no longer beneficial to preserve a Jewish lineage any longer. The, the king is here. Genealogical purity was a big part of the Mosaic Law. Keeping Israel distinct and pure from the surrounding cultures until that ultimate heir to the Davidic throne, whose kingdom will have no end, is born. Uh, tribal distinction in Israel, it's now gone. It's now gone. Their birth records that were kept in the temple were burned in 70 A.D. by a Roman ruler called Titus. It was burned to the ground. All of those records were lost. And uh, by the way, Israel was dispersed among the nations for 1,900 years. So beyond family traditions that they might hold, um, or, or even some family myths in some cases, they have, Jews today have no real confidence of what tribe they came from. They, they don't know for certain. And such distinctions do not matter in the body of Christ. All right? God's pretty wise. Say, you know, we're just going to destroy all of those records, and that's not going to be an issue anymore. Hang with me. This is important. Although physical circumcision was clearly instituted before the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, does that mean it is still binding after we are freed from the law in Christ? Shake your head now. As we saw reading Colossians, it had been transformed or transferred into a spiritual circumcision of the heart. Pre-Sinai existence or, or existence of circumcision before the law was given at Mount Sinai is not binding if Scripture reveals that it has been changed. That's a dispute that's common, a common argument of Sabbatarians who, who attempt to bind Christians to Sabbath day observance as the seventh day. It is proposed that since God established the seventh day as the Sabbath prior to the giving of the law, before Mount Sinai, that Christians are not liberated from obeying the Sabbath day after the expiration of the law when fulfilled in Christ. But the reality is, we are if Scripture says that we are. 
So if it can be established that our Sabbath rest is no longer experienced in a day, does there remain any rest for the people of God? Is there any rest? And if there is rest, where then do we find rest? I'm glad you asked. Because fortunately, the New Testament is not silent about this. And where we find our rest is not difficult to understand. In case you have not been told, we don't find our Sabbath rest in just another day. And the reason Christ's church assembles on Sunday isn't because Scripture changes the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. You will search in vain uh, in the Bible to find that. The Bible does not do that. Uh, But to not leave you in suspense, the Bible transfers our Sabbath rest from a day to a person, the Lord of the Sabbath. Because Hebrews 4 declares, we have rested from our works, not for 24 hours, but we permanently rest from our works on the day that we trust in his. Can you guess what man I'm talking about? Hebrews 4 verse 9 assures us there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered Christ's rest has himself also rested from his work as God did from his. Did you catch that? Resting in Christ parallels God's rest at creation. It's a spiritual rest. God didn't need rest. I think, I think we all know that pretty well, don't we? He didn't need physical rest. He didn't tire out after six days and I just can't go anymore. It's a spiritual uh, teaching to teach us to understand and to serve as a reminder that we need rest and we need to find that rest somewhere. It taught Israel through uh, many generations that there was a need for continual rest. It says we have rested, entered Christ's rest when we have rested from our works and trusted in His. And that continues to say in Hebrews 4, Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Now, now, what does that passage, if you go to Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, which is the context of the statement I just gave you, who served as an example for failing to enter God's rest? Do you remember? It was Israel, right? You'll find this in Hebrews 3 verse 12 through Hebrews 4 verse 11 where it says that God's anger burned against Israel for 40 years. Forty years they were in the wilderness for refusing to obey God and take the land, as he told them to do. And his anger burned against them because they did not believe that God would help them take the land. They cried, the people who are in the land, they're giants. Oh, and we're just mere grasshoppers in their sight. They were afraid to obey God. Why didn't they enter? Hebrews 3.19 tells us, we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. 
Therefore, let us fear if while the promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word that they heard, speaking of Israel, did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Israel failed to enter God's rest due to unbelief, lack of faith. How do Christians enter rest? Sundown Friday evening? 24 hours? No, we enter Christ's rest through faith. And for that reason, the writer of Hebrews says to the church, So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Be diligent to enter that rest. By the way, since the writer of Hebrews finds it necessary to to reiterate to the church that there does remain a Sabbath rest entered through faith, what does that statement itself imply? It implies that those readers had heard Paul's statement. Let no one judge you by a Sabbath day. They might have thought, well then, there is no Sabbath left anymore. And the writer of Hebrews had to tweak their misunderstanding that there was no Sabbath at all, or no rest at all. Hebrews says, no, there remains a rest for the people of God. Be diligent to enter His rest. Rest in Him. So so a spiritual Sabbath rest was modeled by God at creation. Because we know he didn't get physically tired. The Sabbath was clearly reinforced in the law for Israel. And Hebrews says that there remains a Sabbath rest in Christ. So although the Sabbath day has been superseded in Scripture, do we still in some sense keep the Sabbath? Yeah. By placing our faith in Christ, we still keep the Sabbath rest. But our rest is more than just a day. More than just a day. Um, But does that imply that we keep the law? No. 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 Um, Through resting in Christ, we have been freed from that, what is called a yoke of bondage, a yoke of slavery known as the law. And I'm going to serve up a few more verses about from the New Testament about how we uh, know what day we worship and, and the Sabbath and stuff today. But first... What about the ordinances of the law? Other ordinances of the law. Dietary restrictions? Gone. Been superseded. Sacrifices? Done for. Christ is one sacrifice for all sins for all time. Sacrifices are done. There isn't even a place in Jerusalem to burn a sacrifice anymore. Jesus, uh, God did away with that as well when Titus came in. As I've said recently as we started this series... Jews, those who are, are by genealogy Jews, they can't even practice Judaism as the Bible, the Old Testament would tell them to do it. They don't have a place of sacrifice. They don't have the Ark of the Covenant. They don't have uh, the priesthood entering and burning incense and all these things. They don't have it. You can't practice Judaism today uh, after 70 AD as it was uh, in, taught in the law. Um, Circumcision, now it's one made without hands. 
Sabbath rest, it, it was a shadow that is transferred from a day to the substance that is in Christ, his rest. Feasts and festivals expired. The Levitical priesthood, gone. These are all part of what is sometimes referred to, you'll hear this passed around, the ceremonial elements of the law. Have you heard that before? And sometimes you'll hear the ceremonial elements of the law, the priesthood, the burning of sacrifices and other things, contrasted or juxtaposed against the moral elements of the law, things that are moral. And you will hear it sometimes said that Christians are freed from the ceremonial law uh, given to Moses at Sinai, but we're still bound to the element portions of uh, uh, moral elements of the law. You know, I understand what that is trying to say about morality, preserving morality, but I don't think that leaving us chained to the moral elements of the law is the best way to express that. Let me explain. Scripture declares we are free from the law. It was a yoke of slavery. And nowhere do Moses or the Old Testament draw a division between the ceremonial and the moral elements of the law. Nowhere in the Bible will you find that, that there's two charts. And the Bible doesn't divide them saying, well, this is the ceremonial parts of the law, this is the moral parts of the law, and we just did away with that half of that certificate of debt that was held against us. Um, it's all the, the Mosaic law. It all together is the law. You can't, you can't divide it up. I'd like to explain it to you a little differently. So here we go. Morality is Timeless. And it has always existed. Cain murdered his brother Abel. Abimelech, in the time of Abraham, recognized and understood adultery. Sodom was leveled pre-Sinai because of homosexuality. And what Sinai did for Israel was incorporate universally understood morality with the law of Moses. It brought them together. The Mosaic Covenant was then given to Israel as one harmonious unit. We we shouldn't try to chop it up. It's given as a unit. However, when Christ came, and when he became the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe, that's Romans 10 verse 4, And when he freed us from the yoke of slavery, the yoke of bondage, Acts 15.10, and Galatians 5 verse 1, by the way, Christ freed us from the covenant of law, and he replaced it. He replaced it with a covenant of grace, right? We are under the covenant of grace, a new covenant. But what naturally remained, once the contract on Sinai, the Mosaic Law. What naturally remained once that contract was nullified is timeless morality. Present since the beginning. So we default to that. We don't default just to parts of the law. Law has been taken away. We are freed from the law. Morality has always stood from the very beginning. Uh, therefore, 
We see timeless morals reaffirmed in the New Testament. You shall not murder, fornicate, lie, steal, uh, blaspheme, etc., etc., etc. You see all these exhortations in the New Testament. So timeless prohibitions against such things as homosexuality were woven into the law and were in effect during Israel's time when God was working through them. But clearly, morality remains after the law is taken away. It's always been there for nations that God gave the law to and nations who weren't given the law. They always had morals. They always knew what morals were. And the New Testament becomes the clearest arbitrator of what is moral in in assessing morality. And human morality, regardless of its period of dispensation, pre-law, in Israel, during the church age, never contradicts itself. It's timeless. Uh, Homosexuality in the New Testament, you will hear otherwise, but if you read the New Testament, you will see, still prohibited, clearly uh, by multiple writers. Um, So this would be one reason since morality is timeless, that Jesus and the apostles feel completely comfortable, completely comfortable and often citing Old Testament law as an authoritative source for judging ethics. You follow me? A lot of times they're, they're citing the law and morals in the law, but human morality in the Bible never evolved. There's no evolving of morality. There is right and there is wrong. For a season, God brought it into the law for the people of Israel. It's kind of it's difficult stuff. But, but we need to understand we're not bound to the law. This show is really um, when teaching, especially with pastors, uh, a pastor really should, in my opinion, some people argue against this, should attend a good, reputable, solid seminary so he can flush all these things through. That's what they, they do for you in classes. They give you these issues and you have to go in and research and, and come to some harmonious understanding. The other option is to be an under, understudy for a mature uh, pastor for many years. Probably best both. Really both if you're going to teach the word uh, consistently uh, or else you're going to end up being in the pulpit contradicting yourself Sunday to Sunday. Going back and forth and you'll say one thing and three weeks later you'll be saying something else about the Sabbath if you don't have a consistent interpretation of what the Word says. You ready for the home stretch? I was going to have Gerald come up here and we are going to do a seventh inning stretch. <laughs> but i got to get to lunch. I'm with Izell and Linda today. We're going to lunch, so we can't delay this any, any longer. <laughs> we have seen the Sabbath rest has been transferred from a day to a man. So Colossians says, let no one act as your judge in respect to a Sabbath day. Imagine trying to explain that verse away if you held that the Sabbath day is still in force. How, what kind of spiritual gymnastics would you have to do with the Bible in order to explain something that clear away? And in Galatians 4 verse 9, a letter written to abort a return to slavery under the law, Paul writes this, How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. Talking about the festivals there as well. I fear for you, Paul said, that perhaps I have labored labored in you in vain. And Romans 14, verse 4. This is another good one. Who are you to judge the servant of another? One person regards one day above another. Another regards all days alike, every day alike. 
Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. He who eats does so for the Lord, and he who gives thanks uh, for he who gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat. He gives thanks to God. Now, that's, that's a mouthful as well. But uh, know this, that abstaining um, fr- from meat sacrificed to idols in Corinth or, or Rome or any of those places, to abstain from meat eaten by idols is not reinstating the kosher laws. Don't look at that passage and think, well, then it's okay to do dietary restrictions. That's not what that passage is talking about at all. Other passages said there are no dietary restrictions. Done. What it's doing is reinstating Christian liberty. And uh, there were temple sacrifices where some people who used to go to the temple used to even bow down with such sacrifices being offered to a false god. Their conscience is like, I don't feel comfortable doing that. Offer eating meat that's offered to idols. I don't want anything from my past life. Other people are like, man, I just love food wherever it comes from. It's not about going back to dietary restrictions or Judaism. What would be more, what would be a better parallel? I might get criticized for this, but it's more accurate. Maybe not a perfect parallel, but a better parallel. A better parallel today would be someone who used to work in a bar or they used to have a drinking problem, and they used to drink too much and do different things in their past life, and today they're like, I can't have anything to do with that. Someone else may be able to, who never had any background like that may be able to have a glass of wine with dinner and say, I don't have any, any problem with that in my heart at all. It doesn't affect me. And what it teaches the two groups is to say, don't pick on one another. If you're going to abstain from that, abstain for the glory of the Lord. If you're going to have it, give thanks. Within biblical parameters, give thanks. No one is to act as your judge. So let me abridge that same passage, that same statement, just to focus on days. Because that's what we're talking about today. Do not judge. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Let each person be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. Well, some conclude that this permits us to reestablish a Sabbath day. No, that's clearly mistaken. Because other passages in Scripture clearly say you can't judge anyone by a Sabbath day. And that our Sabbath rest is in Him. Don't want any confusion. So that's mistaken. There is no mention of a Sabbath day in that book of Romans at all. It's not even in, the, in that part of the passage. It just says that one elevates one day above another. In fact, with the Sabbath day of the Ten Commandments, there is only one that Jesus never states. And he guess which one? Remember the Sabbath day. He states every other one. There's a change that's happening. A change that's occurring. Instead, Jesus was repeatedly accused of violating the Sabbath day. What was his response to such charges? He, he said it in Luke chapter 6, verse 5, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So when we covered that passage 
quite a while ago because we've been working through Luke. This is just a summer break. If you're a visitor, we're, we're in the middle of Luke right now. When we covered that passage in Luke chapter 6, verse 5, we did a two-week series, A Christian Sabbath, The Rest of the Story, parts 1 and 2. Kind of snappy, isn't it? The rest of the story. Rest. Forget it. <laughs> there we heard Jesus explain that God never rests from doing good works. Therefore, Jesus says in, the, in that message that I gave, not in that direct passage, but in that message, therefore I, being God, I never rest from doing good. And the priests, Jesus said, never rest in the temple. They're continually, in, continually offering sacrifices. Additionally, Christ said, I am Lord of the Sabbath. And being Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus can't violate it. He can't violate that which he is Lord over. And then he turns to his disciples, who are breaking up you know, ears of grain. He says, they're with me. And they can't violate it either. If you'd like a little more scriptural reinforcement, listen to that, those messages. That's January 7th and 14th of 2018. I know most of you aren't going to go there. Um, so the summary is this. When we rest in Christ, when we rest in His work, we can't violate a Sabbath day. We can't be found guilty of that. We can only fail to enter His rest. That's the only thing we can do. We can fail to enter by faith. So then... What does it mean that some regard one day higher than another? Well, I can assure you this. Scripture doesn't permit a return to observing the Sabbath day. What it must mean is that some will regard one day as special above others. You might suppose a man such as me, after hearing what I've already shared, that I'd land in the category of Romans 14, verse 5. One who regards all days alike. I'm one who winces, actually, when I hear pastors pushing their congregations under the yoke of the law that was given to Israel. Commands. Legalistic commands. Sabbath-keeping, compulsory tithing, things like this that were given to Israel but have been transformed in the New Testament. Um, I wince when I hear that, not only because Paul states in Galatians that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It's up because he also assures that those seeking justification through law-keeping are severed from Christ. That's Galatians 5 verse 4. That, that's what really chafes me with legalism. That, that a confusion about these things could result in someone being severed from Christ. That's a place I don't even want to tread. I dare not leave any confusion alluding to, to perhaps we're still enforcing what was given to Israel. Feasts and dietary restrictions and days and, and festivals and tithes. Folks, that's what the Judaizers did. They push Christians back under the law or attempt to. Uh, the law doesn't grow Christ's church. The reality is, is that spirit-indwelt Christians, those who've been born again, they attend church more consistently, they give more sacrificially, and they serve more willingly after a proper understanding of grace. That is a fact. When you're not 
pinning people under the thumb. Do this, do that. Or you say, you know what? Christ is to be glorified. He's wonderful. He's died for us. You've got an opportunity to, to join in the one work he's doing on this planet. Primary work, anyhow. Building his church. You can be part of that. The Spirit works through grace. Yet as defensive as I am, I do not regard all days alike. As we've learned in this series, our Lord has given us commands that we are to obey. And one of the most prevalent in Scripture is found in Hebrews 10, verse 25. Thou shalt not, I just threw that in there, forsake the assembly of yourselves together as is the habit of some. You almost hear in his demeanor the writer, but encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's talking about the return of Christ. In, in fact, the verse prior to that, Hebrews 10.24, includes one of our primary reasons for gathering together for corporate worship is to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. I don't know how you could obey that while sitting on a couch. I don't know how you can obey that uh, command of Christ seated in a football stadium. Oh, that's going to be too hard. That's too hard. We are commanded to assemble with God's people and obey His command, the Lord's commands. Uh, 1 John 5 verse 3 says, are not burdensome. It's not too much. That's not a burden to get together and worship and love and share your lives and others. There's nothing burdensome about that command. I'll return there in a moment. In fact, if you were going to slip out a little early today to catch a game, might be a good time right now. But as for the day, there seems to me ample evidence in Scripture that the church has from its inception, from day one, ordinarily assembled on the first day of the week, that being Sunday. The Apostle John refers to it as the Lord's Day, Revelation 1 verse 10. That is because the first day of the week is the day that the tomb was found empty because Jesus was no longer dead. Jesus chose to rise on the first day of the week and initiate a new covenant of grace among a new gathering of his redeemed, distinct from Judaism, a new work. It is the Lord's day. Every time the Lord appeared to his disciples in Scripture, uh, after his resurrection, before the day of ascension, if that passage attaches a day to it, not all of them do, but several do, Scripture underscores that Jesus appeared to his followers on the first day of the week. Admittedly, Paul the Apostle visited many, um, many synagogues on the Sabbath day. Folks, he did that because there'd be nobody there any other day. That's why he went there. That's the only day anyone was going to be there. It's like coming to church here on Thursday. Who would do that? 
So he went there on the day that he would find Jews there. But when he visited the assembly of the church, as he did in Troas for seven days, meaning that he could have picked any day, or they could have been any day, it wasn't just a special day. Acts 20 verse 7 says that it was on the first day of the week that they gathered together to break bread. Communion, the Lord's Supper. And in the passage I invited you to bookmark, 1 Corinthians 16, if you can remember that far back, the Apostle Paul gave this instruction to Corinth and all, ga- all churches in Galatia. It wasn't just to Corinth for, for one little local problem they had in Corinth. This was general uh, to all. He says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, Each of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that there be no collections made when I come. Jesus was resurrected on. He appeared on. He reappeared on. Bread was broken on. And collections were made for the poor on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. Not only this, But the day of Pentecost, Pentecost, by the way, celebrated the first fruits of a new harvest for the year. That's what that that feast was about, the Feast of Pentecost. Um, Also called the Feast of Weeks, if I remember right. On the day of Pentecost, it was upon that day that Christ's church was born. Any guess? what day of the week Pentecost falls on every year? Sunday. The first day of the week. That was the day that the church was born. Scripture and history clearly affirm the church has always, since its inception, gathered on the Lord's Day. Normally. Never let yourself get sucked into the false narrative. There are plenty out there. One is of Emperor Constantine. I hear this all the time. That he, around 312 AD, somewhere around there, that he was the first to establish Sunday as the day of worship for Christians so as to harmonize us with pagan worship in the empire. Uh, Supposedly, sun worship. That's why we call it Sunday, according to that. Um... And supposedly it is argued prior to 312 A.D. that all Christians remained Sabbath keepers prior to Constantine. I'll admit, Constantine did establish Christianity as the state religion. That's true. But the proposal that the church observed Saturday before that, that's scripturally ill-informed. And it's usually circulated by people wanting to do two things. Either just mock the history of Christianity, mock and trip us up and say, you didn't even, you know, why are you doing this and question us, everything that we're doing? Or it's an attempt to drag us back under the law. That's Judaizing. Personally, I hold Lord's Day in, in my heart that, that that day is above all others. It's because it's revealed in Scripture as the preferred day of worship for Christians. Does that indicate that Sunday is the new Sabbath? Does that mean we should condemn those who gather on Tuesday or any other day? No. 
Romans 14 prohibits us from doing that. Let every man be convinced in his own mind. There's liberty in that, as I'm convinced in mine. The only time I buck up is when Sunday worshipers are accused of violating the Sabbath day. You know, I just reply, thank you. My Lord was accused of the identical thing. Thank you. I look like him. And did you know, he's Lord of the Sabbath. I'm sticking with him. And then I tell them that you have deficient theology. That's not what the Bible teaches. So since we find our Sabbath rest in, by faith in Christ, and if there is no Sabbath day, how does this affect the Christian? Well, there remains a weekly assembly of the saints. This is the hard part. And at this church, it occurs on the first day of the week. Every week. Teaching, preaching, worshiping, sharing of our lives, baptisms, the Lord's Supper, mutual encouragement, stimulation to love and good deeds. And Scripture says don't forsake it. Don't forsake it. And you can't do these at home. You can't. Your, your pastor can't comply uh, with this sharing of life with one another via a satellite television link. Can't. Can't watch church on TV. I do not believe personally in satellite churches at all. Not good for the people, not good for the pastor. Gives pastor a big head without working with those who are in the congregation directly. Large church is fine. Grow big. That's wonderful. God is, if God is showering with His grace. Um, you can't fulfill the Lord's day or His commands watching church on a computer screen. You can't fulfill your obligations, my obligations to Christ while sitting in a football stadium or sitting in a sports bar. You know, there was a day, and there's going to be grace at the end. Be patient. There was a day when all regular high school extracurricular activities were held Monday through Friday. You know why that was? Because parents demanded that the school stay out of their weekend and Christ worship. Families demanded that. It's a similar reason collegiate football was allotted to Saturday. Not to interfere with Christ and worship. Then, because no days remained, the pros finally imposed their will on the Lord's day, and people have been forsaking Christ ever since. Of course, I'm just using football as one example because it's off-season. It's easy to do. <laughs> it doesn't count listening to a sermon during a drive over to Raymond James Stadium. Not even, even if you... Say a prayer with the kids on the way over beforehand. You know, you might say, you know, I love the Bucks. I love the Bucks. I've been season ticket holders for 10 years. My, me and my family can't, can't miss a Bucks game. You've got an idol in your life that's interfering between you and Christ and His church. If a sport has intruded that far into a life, whatever recreation, that we will forsake Christ and His church? 
and worship of him, what are we to do? I'll meet you in the middle. Watch collegiate football. No one should teach their families to habitually forsake church for any kind of recreation, whatever it is. Enjoy it on Saturdays. Enjoy it on Saturdays. Christ says, we shall be here to encourage and stimulate one another to love and good deeds, to learn about one another, to learn the names of family members of those that are sitting together, um, to discover one another's hurts and bear one another's burdens, the poor, the less fortunate, the orphans and widows amongst us. So we're here. You know, church, church isn't a spectator sport. Like most of you all know that, and you're great. Um, visitation and care for another, others in the church, it's not solely the responsibility of pastors. We enjoy it. But Scripture places those ministries to care for one another and visit one another when they're sick and go to the hospital, places that responsibility on all of us. We can't just farm out our social responsibilities through paying a pastor to do it for us. Scripture does not allow that. We'll be all recompensed in heaven according to how we have treated his body. Um, at this church, membership. Uh, members know we assemble on Sundays. That's our day. Uh, and if we take just a moment to consider how our personal pre- uh, presence fills up this building with music and voices, bustling with laughter and joy and worship. Think of the difference between that and a full place versus walking into a location where there's 30 people in a large auditorium just staring at one another. Your presence here is important. It's incredibly important. Just walking in here, following up the guys, I was really dry today, had to get some water cut out, followed them in. And uh, it, it is interesting, because everybody here sings well. But when you're in the back row, you can't hear everybody because your voice is going forward. I'm telling you what, the front row, those are the best seats. Those voices come forward. I mean, I tingle sometimes. Not often. But I tingle <laughs> at the voices as they radiate forward. These are the best seats up here. You go to the back, that's great. You got young kids, you want to be able to... But, but there's definitely a volume difference just standing in the back with everybody's voices going forward. We, we get the best seats in the house right here. These are the chief seats. Um... We are a body of Christ. Alistair Begg likes to say we come together to edify and multiply. It's uplifting. See everyone here. I hold Sunday above all other days. I, I'd love to see all non-essential businesses closed on Sunday. I grew up during the blue laws. I'm all for them. I'm all for them. I know they're not coming back. But they kept our believing and unbelieving culture, the people together, in cadence. We shared time together. We shared the afternoons together. Um, Let most workers and their families have the day off to attend church if they so desire or if they wish all picnic together in the afternoon. A day together is good. That's one reason I really appreciate Chick-fil-A. I do. Hobby Lobby, others as well. Whether your employees are believers or not, the joy that they have, the refreshment they have coming in Monday, just from all having time off together, till our culture desperately misses that. 
Some will always have to work. Eric Yerkes works at the prison every other Sunday. Police, emergency response, military, most have to work. At least part of the work. Are they breaking the Sabbath? No. No, they're not. Um, For pastors, honestly, Daryl will back me up on this. Sunday is the most grueling day for us. We're up early. I know, I know I'm usually up 5, 5.30, trying to go back to the sermon, look at it again. Um, by the time afternoon comes, lunchtime comes, man, I, I'm, I'm whipped. Have a big meal, and I'm looking for a nap. Because everybody needs rest. I, I try to set aside Saturday as a day for rest and recreation. Um, I hear that some people get two, two days off together. I don't know. But it's impossible to dismiss God's clear command to assemble with one another faithfully. It's time to go. Um, A little grace before we leave. Appreciate your patience with this. Um, Are we all going to miss church some? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Most conferences I attend that talk about pastor and pastoral health and families and other things um, suggest pastors should miss a little more. In fact, after this message, I wouldn't doubt that some here would think that I should miss a little more. (laughs) But we need physical rest, emotional rest, vacations, family reunions, weddings. Some some day the Buccaneers might even go to a Super Bowl again. Who knows? Would I skip church for a Sunday to go watch the Buccaneers in the Super Bowl? If you're paying for the ticket, I would. (laughs) Even pastors need a little grace. But let us remember, by one spirit we're all baptized into one body, and our presence in Christ's body is important. We're all members of one another. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Christ is Lord of the Sabbath and He is showing us His His amazing grace. Let's share it with one another more than just a day. Let's pray. Father, (laughs) oh Lord, You're so so gracious and kind. And and Lord, through Your Word, as uh, we're reminded, uh, each of us is just a work in progress. As uh, Lord, You sharpen us through Your Word and we learn new things and we adjust Lord, we learn to put off the flesh. We learn to uh, um, obey as we learn the Word of God. And, and Lord, what we learn most of all is just how to enjoy your grace. Lord, we all need it. We're so grateful for it. Lord, bless our meal as we go forward. And, and uh, Lord, may you be magnified. In Christ's name we pray.